Welcome to the first of the third series of Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. After two series of interviews, we're changing the format a little, with a semi-permanent panel alongside me discussing issues and news facing the city, and by implication, I suppose, of all cities. My two companions are Eve Holt, who appeared on the very first episode about the massively successful Mobike project. The scars are still in evidence on my back for that one. Eve is founder of Happen Manchester, a company that bring bringing people together to make the most of their lives and their environments. She's also a councillor on Manchester City Council. Alongside is Michael Taylor, who's Director of Regional Affairs at Manchester Metropolitan University. He's the founder of the Metropolis Think Tank, that's not an easy word to say, and has been commenting on the city's development for a couple of decades now. We'll be having a look at what's happening around the city in a section brilliantly entitled The First Bit, then dodging away from our recording space for an interview with Manchester's Director of Culture, Dave Mootry, who's also been on the podcast before, before returning for our main subject of conversation, looking at the city's plans for more cycleways and for improved mobility for cyclists and pedestrians. Finally, we'll be having a bit of fun and recommending some podcasts. So here we are at Accelerate Places on Princess Street uh, in the Ollershaw room. And Ollershaw is Eve. She was the mayor of Manchester. She was a long time ago. And Tory mayor of Manchester as well, which is why she's got a very small room that's very hot and painted blue. We can't actually see outside. Uh, it's been a gorgeous day in Manchester. All those people who swanned off to Cannes will be really regretting that they're in the south of France as opposed to Costa del Irwell. Uh, Michael, how are you? Yeah, really good. Thank you, Vaughan. Uh, and Eve, you all right? I'm good. That's a good history lesson to start with. Yes, yes. We've all learned something about another woman in Manchester. That's a good start. It's definitely. Okay, and well, we'll come back to that subject later, I think, as well. Um, we wanted to start with things happening in the news. We will get, in a couple of episodes, a really cool stab to go with that in the background or whatever, some sort of musical thing to go with that. Um, starting a few weeks ago, the mayor launched a clean air strategy to try and deal with the awful impact of pollution, particularly in the more deprived areas of the city. The current proposal is to charge buses, lorries and taxis on entering a ring around the city, but not private cars. Any views? Thoughts? I'm looking at Eve first. Yeah, We're all at Eve so first. <laughs> yeah, it was described as a cop out, wasn't it? So certainly Pete Abel, good friend, well known environmentalist, was out there in the, the front of the Guardian, thanks to Helen Pitt doing her thing. Um, so there's lots of questions around whether it was right to exclude cars um, from that. Um, completely understand Burnham's reasons um, that in terms of there are. And there are lots of people in Greater Manchester for whom it's a lot harder to get around other than in a car. So as somebody that lives in Chalton, it is much easier for me to cycle here where I work and accelerate places or to the town hall by bike. You know, it's a lot easier for me to get around or by public transport. And that isn't the same for everybody across Greater Manchester. So completely get that. Um, It is tricky though, isn't it? When we are recognising that literally the hot topic, (laughs) the the hot topic of the moment has to be climate change. And we have certain ambitious targets and um, which we absolutely have to meet of um being zero carbon in 2038 and actually is a big call for that to be even sooner given the crisis so it's quite hard to marry those two i think it's one of those things that's always going to be very hard to get right and to please everybody because there are equally going to be squeals from say the other side 
uh, particularly if you did anything around cars. I think one of the one of the pieces of feedback that came back very strongly from businesses, and this has only gone out to consultation. This is not the, the, the final plans. Uh, is the mixed message of talking around um, uh, including buses in this when we're actually trying to encourage people onto public transport. If you have 40 people on a bus, even if it is slightly polluting, that actually has a much lesser impact than if you have 40 people in separate cars. Yeah, I think it's highlighted um, how complex the whole issue is about regulating public transport and using the very limited powers that the mayor has to pull different levers, to encourage behaviours, to get towards the longer longer term, more important goals, such as the one Eve was talking about, about reducing carbon and improving air quality in Greater Manchester as a whole. And it's all tied up as well with the spatial framework, where how are we going effectively to use land in the future? Where are we going to build homes? Where are we going to build office? Basically, how are we going to use land in order to build new things for the good of the economy? And this is just one small part of a much bigger, more complex picture and yeah it's a step and yeah it's it, it probably doesn't please anybody at all because it's not enough for some and it's too much from car users perspective and you might have a view on this Vaughan in the with the businesses that you talk to at city co is getting into manchester in the car is difficult as it is and they believe that that's all part of a great master plan to discourage people to get out of their cars anyway this isn't going to help that yeah, I want to add something. I guess it's too easy to get distracted, isn't it, by the things that we disagree on that are really tricky. And this is one of the areas of the plan that is divides people. Actually, it's a huge amount that we completely agree on. So in terms of people wanting cleaner, more accessible, more affordable public transport, everybody agrees we need to be heading in that direction. It's challenging. But there is consensus on that. Also, there's consensus around we need to be more, we need to be more walkable city um, and more people want to be able to get around and to improve our public realm and our pavements. So it's a huge amount that I think we can get on and do. And often what happens, I guess, the headline is those elements that do divide people because people have different experiences depending on what your life looks like and where you live. Um, and we need to make the link between climate change and social justice because in the end, it does, it will impact on the poorest. Yeah, most. if there's a grand challenge that we at Manchester Metropolitan University have taken from this is we've got a lot of people working on fuel cells and hydrogen vehicles and we see that as a big opportunity and we've got people who are going to be presenting at the Mayor's Green Summit and there's a real opportunity. Other cities around the world, in China and, and indeed in London, are looking at decarbonising decarbonizing their bus fleet and replacing it with hydrogen vehicles. And the technology exists to do that. It might be expensive, it might be elite, but it'll actually get you to a number of different policy goals before... I, th I think that's the bit that everybody pointed out, whatever... Well, there are many sides to this debate because there is just a debate around the tactics more than anything else. So there's a whole conversation about... If you're a resident in the city centre, does this affect you? If you're if you're driving into your flat and then parking in your flat, and how is that how is that going to fit in? Um, I, I and I guess the question certainly around buses is most of the bus operators in the city, or certainly the big two or three, would love to electrify all their fleet, and certainly one of them is moving quite fast to electrify all their fleet. But it comes down to the funding; it comes down to certainty over knowing the contract. So, if there is a funding package that's associated with this, you move an awful, an awful lot faster. It is, it is astonishing uh, to see, of course, quite how fast uh, within cars 
electrification has leapt from being quite an obscure thing even two or three years ago to being absolutely mainstream, sitting in the cinema on Sunday. I think probably every car advert was for either a plug-in hybrid or, or it was for a fully electric car. And, that, and that's a change that is just ex- accelerating, if you mind the pun. Faster and faster and faster. But again, we need the infrastructure. Where, where are the charging points in the city centre? Yeah, and charging points in themselves, that's just another, another great drain on the grid. Futures hydrogen, trust me on this one. Yes. And sharing. And I think, you know, I can say, you know, we couldn't afford an electric vehicle. Most people can't. But I'd absolutely happily share an electric vehicle. We don't use a car most of the time. We only need them occasionally. So I can see getting to a point where we are going to have a few car shares on on our street or in our local area and how we design those spaces now where the opportunities are to do that. Um, And we have to be careful that there's charging on on, on pavements and aren't limiting, you know, pedestrians because it becomes potentially more, uh, yeah, street furniture as well. So there's a lot to take into account yeah i'll completely validate that i've our family have recently gone down to one car and everyone else on our street seems to have gone up to about five cars as their kids have grown grown older and we're just zigging against that because you've got to take a wider view it's not good i think there's an interesting model as well at ncp um the half of it that isn't owned by the city council is is of course uh, it was owned by an australian uh vc for many years but then has been bought out by a japanese uh, car parking company, which is the biggest single purchaser of cars in Japan. Uh, and their model is no longer for private use of their car parks, but is effectively as a car rental scheme, which is increasingly, for Toyota and Honda purchases, electric. And I think that model of, okay, well, if you do have a car, if you're coming from another city, you park on the edge, and then you may use an electric vehicle to come in, or a bike, or however else that is done. But actually, that integration of how that works is going to be the future. And I, and, and I think that's a massive step forward in terms of their business as well. Last last point. Oh, I'm allowed the last point, which is just, I mean, that's key in terms of car parking. Space, space is such an issue, isn't it? And we talk about wanting more green space, more public realm, more housing. We want more space for so many things. And in the end, a huge amount of space is currently taken up by vehicles that sit there that are unused for huge amounts of time. And the more I think about that, that just seems absolutely bonkers. You know, we look constantly at how we're efficient and we're diverse in the way that we use things we make best use of everything that we have and they're sat there when used so absolutely car sharing thinking about how we can reclaim some of that space for other things is the way to go cool and, and not unrelated i think um a bbc report a couple of weeks back suggested that locals are being completely priced out of the city center housing market uh, i know that capital and centric uh, got an awful lot of press for launching a development where uh all of the flats were meant to go to people living within a couple of miles radius, so people from Greater Manchester. Uh, and I know a few other developers are also looking at similar models. Um, are local people being priced out of the market? And does it matter, Michael? Well, I take it back, and this is probably quite a controversial point of view. Um, what gives you the right to think that you have to live in what is becoming a very prestigious address, which is city centre Manchester. I think the greater challenge is to build more homes, not just in the city centre, but to bring homes to places like East Manchester, which do need more life, more public realm, more space. And I'm at this position, and both, you know, as a parent, I'm looking at where my my offspring might want to live. And, you know, it's not going to be in spinning fields. It might be in Drawlsden to start with. It might be in, you know, somewhere around the Etihad Stadium. And I want that to be a safe, secure environment, but it's a, you know, it's somewhere for them to start if they want to own their own home or rent somewhere affordably. And I think the point that some of the developers are making is um, 
that they're pricing that product in the city centre very much aimed at a professional market. And there's a massive demand for that. And that's where the economy is heading. That is the way, that's where the opportunities are being created. That's what the city council is actually encouraging. And they're actually playing a game of three-dimensional chess by trying to answer that question by saying, oh yeah, we've got an affordable element to it as well. It's not that far away to lots of other areas, which with a bit of help and with a bit of proper planning in 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 its you know, in its purest sense, can make those neighbourhoods open and agile and available to lots of other people to want to live in. And I'm sure that's the level of debate that goes on at the City Council, isn't it, Eve? Yeah, so I think I'd have a shorter answer initially to the question of are people being priced out and is it a problem, which is yes and yes. I think that is the reality. We have a housing boom at the same time, a housing crisis. And we have huge numbers of people across the lifespan who are currently unable to have a home. Um, Now, I think, yeah, we absolutely need to continue building um, whilst recognising everything we talked about, about climate change and about space and public realm. Um, So we need to be clever about that. And it is about a diversity of homes, isn't it? To meet a diversity of needs. And I think for me, that is everywhere. I don't want to see areas become known as that is just for professionals or exec homes or this is an area where you know this is just for those who are over 50 or this is just for young people it's about building communities and actually to build a community you need intergenerational um, interaction um, and that's what we've got in Manchester people talk about the diversity the cultural offerings that come with that so absolutely I want to see people come to Manchester and adopt it as their home from all around the world but I want them to be in a place that has a quality of build and of social infrastructure and space and it facilitates them to actually interact with their neighbours and build a local community so I think it becomes a real issue when one we've got people that can't get homes where our private rented sector is dire and we've got absent landlords and rogue landlords and then when people see empty properties that are sat sat there and sky rise that aren't for them that creates a problem because it's a sign of huge inequality and when we're not creating with that an ability to have the community cohesion that we absolutely are crying out for and the connection Um, so we need to design all that in and we need to hold our private property developers to account that if they're saying they're going to include and they must include affordable housing and social housing within in this mix you know and that's our commitment as a council we need to build more of social housing and affordable housing and we can have in addition have you know housing for those that can afford it I think, I think there's been a huge change in the last 25 years of people living in the city center i think there was a case even 10 years ago 11 years ago um when you looked at affordable housing um and particularly if you looked at housing for people who were teachers or essential staff or whatever you could sort of say what well, and particularly when the argument was made about well you're forcing the forcing the community out well there wasn't a community there before so you could fling up flats and and there actually were a new community coming in and i believe the university of manchester did a, a very large piece of work that was saying it's you're basically building a new town that happens to be in the city center the reality now is when we're talking about 30,000 40,000 50,000 people and we're talking about a new new school in Ancoats and there's a lovely preschool that's going up there starting to build that infrastructure you do need people who are able to work in those as well and you need to look but the uh, my argument would be I, the because the supply is continually expanding most areas of the city center they haven't actually increased their price certainly not as much as you would in Shulton or Didsbury in the last 10 years but the reality is more and more flats that are being flung up are being advertised overseas for investors or being done on buy to rent. So it's actually about where they're being advertised and the process for putting them on the market, which means that local pe- people 
don't have any choice whatsoever. And obviously there's issues around mortgage funding as well. Um, and, it, and it's that, where we don't want to get to, of course, is where developers are putting in 10% as affordable, and has happened on, on, on King's Cross, where those affordable houses then got bought two years later and bought again yeah. two years later yeah. and actually trebled in price within six years or four years, I think it was. Uh, you know, that that is no good to anybody. So rather than just looking at it in terms of the end product, mm -hmm. I think we have to look at it much more holistically, as you say, around how that community is built. But also, which I think is really important, all of that supply chain. What What is your percentage of people as you're flinging up these flats that are coming from those local communities? What money is coming back into that local area? Um, which is... That horrible phrase which is now being ignored that inclusive growth growth thing but it is actually how you can put that money back and make sure that stays there absolutely yeah and that's you know and that's about the design of the building isn't it as well you know so how are these quality builds these quality materials that meet our local targets and you know that's when you get the combination of you hear the statistics in terms of that you know recent news story that only nine local people or something were able to occupy this flat and then you also see these buildings that I question whether they are in any way adding to our commitments as a green, cleaner, greener, you know, more connected city. Um, so there's a huge amount that needs to be in there. And I think some of it is about the perception. So I would love to know there's that, you know, you get the news line. Actually, you know, how many of the people in our flats in the city centre are people that have grown up in Manchester that are local? I know we've got councillors that live in Manchester City Centre. I know people that have purposely chosen to, you know, downsize or right size to an apartment in the city centre because they don't want a car. They're in the middle of the cultural centre and they see that as a great place to live. And you are talking about teachers and people who work in the public sector. They're not all people who have necessarily come in with huge amounts of wealth. So it'd be good to maybe get a sense of what the actual numbers do look like um as opposed to maybe some of the headlines i think one of the interesting things around around it and this is an issue at the most base level for the police and for others is is where you look at some of the communities some of the wards you have very good contacts you have residence groups but the reality is still in the city center outside of castlefield which obviously has a, a very motivated as, as you as a councillor i'm sure will know a very motivated residence group and a couple of the other areas, because the population continues to be so transient, having those links and actually finding out who the people inside are, we are starting to get some people. I mean, I've lived in the city centre for 11, 12 years. Um, and, you know, around Ancoats, I know I have a member of staff who, who leads all the Ancoats crime prevention panels and various other things. There are, there are very passionate people about those communities, which, which has changed a lot uh, in the last 10, 15 years, I think. And, and I think that, that will change, but it's making sure we can't find out who's there until we can actually talk to those people and have have a longer term relationship with them. How much of a of an issue is Airbnb, particularly in say the northern quarter, and effectively having a, almost a hotel population populating what should be by statistics a residential market? It can be certainly where I live. There are a few flats that that are, are out on Airbnb, mm -hmm. but we don't tend to hear the horror stories that come from other cities. Okay. Um, though I think we are seen as the second biggest. Airbnb city certainly in Britain uh, and actually I think we're one of the biggest in Europe uh, getting the statistics on it isn't that easy uh, the Airbnb places are not tracked partially because quite often they're not professional um, Airbnbers that rent they've just rent them for one weekend in four or something like that uh, but we also of course we have a huge glut of serviced accommodation uh, and many flats that were well sorry many places that were designated as flats in 2008 after the crash became serviced accommodation, which is one of the reasons why. We're, so um, 
there are issues around party flats and various other things. They tend to be in the serviced accommodation rather in rather than in the Airbnb. And, and certainly my, my sense is that from those who I know who do rent their, their places out as Airbnb, the controls that are now in place by Airbnb are, are an awful lot stronger than they, okay. they used to be. But also some of that is, you know, frankly, by the by, it's you just take care. If there's a night of boxing on at the arena, you probably don't rent out your one-bed flat if you want it back in a good state on the Monday morning. You know, you know it's basic things like that. Yeah, it comes back to the main question, doesn't it, of, um, you know, we want houses for homes, really, <laughs> as opposed to houses for people to make profit out of. And I think there's a big difference to, to me anyway, in my mind, of, um, yeah, somebody that rents out their room occasionally that is their home and whilst they're not occupying it they go away I am biased I'm a, you know as a family with three kids actually we often stay in Airbnbs across the world because they provide a family's place to be in and we maybe couldn't afford to be in a hotel and it's a different vibe and you often get a local connection somebody that will tell you about the local place but that feels very different to if it's a buy to let and then it's rented out via Airbnb and that's where we need tied to regulations so that we just don't have people yeah, making profit out of spaces that need to be homes for people. I'm always astonished by how, how trusting some owners are in Airbnbs. I stayed in a place in Deptford last year for various reasons that I won't go into um, and the guy had left out his decks. He'd got records still on them and he just put a little note on them saying, unless you know how to use these decks, please don't play on them. And it was just like, that seems incredibly trusting of people as far as I was concerned. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's no, great, it's great, isn't it? It, very, that, it, it nurtures It was described as quirky, yeah. and indeed it was quirky. Yeah. And it does, it's people sharing their space, and they're op- literally opening their door. And, well, that's creating a culture then of, of, yeah, actually, it's trust, and it's sharing, and it's, yeah, yeah. let's go for that. Anything else in the news, guys? Uh, well, I'll answer the launch of a report that I had a little bit of input into. Um, an organisation called the British Foreign Policy Group uh, produced a report called Manchester, Soft Power Entrepreneur. And they wanted to, Richard Lee launched it, Howard was on the panel, as was Abigail Gregory, who I work with at the university. And it, it's looking at Manchester as a city post-Brexit, if we do indeed secure Brexit, um, that what Manchester's links are. And it's got a really proud history of almost developing its own foreign policy and international relations, the China Business Forum, but even, you know, taking ethical issues like, you know, the Manchester workers not handling slave cotton in the 19th century. And Manchester's got a lot to show the rest of the country that if we are to develop an economy that's globally connected, that works for everyone, as more people than it has done, then we've got the building blocks in place to actually build on that. And it seems quite fitting that while we're sat here talking in sunny Manchester, they're down in rainy mid in the <laughs> south of France, talking about this very subject and, and you know, it, it being a, a globally connected city. It was one of the first British cities to actually market itself on that sphere as, uh, as, the, point, as the point was made. Do we get a sense when we travel abroad that Manchester is, is it, is it more than the football clubs? Because <laughs> obviously yeah, the so football clubs help, help hugely in terms of global reputation. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's Oasis as well. Yeah, <laughs> football clubs and music. I'm not sure it goes that much further. I think people do get a sense of the spirit, don't they? The B, I think what happened after the arena bombing, people do recognise there's something 
there's a spirit in, in Manchester um, that has spread across the world that rec- people recognise as values. Um, and it's interesting because that reference there to the Lincoln statue, you know, from there to Emmeline statue. Um, you know, there are, again, you know, we've been the birthplace of the jet movement. People do associate us with a place that does pioneer, that does have activism um, at its sort of, at its heart. It's quite interesting. I remember traveling in Eastern Europe and indeed I, I lived in Detroit for a while um, and when you go to some rundown industrial cities or cities that have mm. have had that industry plus other things like culture like De- Detroit is, is is a classic uh it's sort of Manchester 50 years on rather than cotton it was doing the motor cars but then it produced amazing music um they seem to know more about Manchester than others almost as though certainly in eastern Germany in Leipzig I can I can remember being quite and obviously I'm from Yorkshire so uh, it just got got into the conversation of Manchester never heard of Leeds but had heard of Manchester and, and there was this connection of almost uh, I, I don't know whether it had been part of the state propaganda that we want Leipzig to be like Manchester when it was a shock city and we want to go through this and to drive this the, the connections with uh, you, you hear the same thing from Chinese people coming over as well they're very aware of that technological development in the 19th century because they see the same issues happening there populations having to change having to bring in immigration from the countryside in order to make sure you have people in the factories social change social social unrest and they see those lessons uh, and I think in more bucolic places, they probably don't. The Loire Valley, not so much. Mm-hmm. I guess the question is, what will we be seen as? In 10 years' time, what will people be saying about Manchester? And will it be saying we've led the fourth industrial revolution? You know, Will it be saying that in terms of green technology, that we're pioneering, that we're leading the way? Um, or will we have fallen behind? And I think there's a real opportunity right now to think about what we do and how we're going to do it. Excellent. We'll be back after a short interview. Back in June 2017, which seems like another lifetime ago, I interviewed Dave Mutry about Home, First Street and a host of other things. As this is becoming a catch-up podcast, strictly only friends of the show invited, I thought it would be an idea to bring things up to date. In the meantime, Dave has been elevated to the highly, no, the opposite of lowly title of uh, Director of Culture for Manchester uh, City. So he's in a good place to give us an overview of how the city's doing. Dave, what's exciting you about culture in the city at the moment? Um, I'm really excited about what organisations, the organisations I work with, are doing to really engage with some of the important issues in the city, particularly around arts and health. So there's some uh, exciting work going on um, coming out of Manchester Museum, the Whitworth, Manchester Camerata, Royal Exchange, etc. Looking at things uh, uh, around um, loneliness, around uh, 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 how arts can um, support uh, people's uh, mental health improvements, about physical health improvements, those sort of things. I, th- I think there's quite a lot of work there um, going on, which is exciting. We just culminated in uh, a thing called the Manchester Declaration, which a number of organisations are, uh, are signing up to about our role as arts and cultural providers in improving the lives of people in the city. Uh, that's fascinating because though that's been a, an agenda that's been around for well the 60s at least if not before that mm. um even 15 years ago you weren't seeing particularly art galleries 
they might they might have an education program but you weren't seeing that sort of lifelong commitment to the communities i think that it's it's a it's a direct response to some of the things we're seeing happening more broadly in our in our cities and society um about how uh the uh, the, the state for whatever reason is is is, is withdrawing from support and we're uh, withdrawing support from some of the most vulnerable people in in, in our city and we're thinking well we need to be playing our part and 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 it, it it's about organizations and artists as citizens within this city and being collectively uh engaged with uh, improving lives so, but uh, yeah i think it's that that response to austerity i suspect but i guess also i suppose it's you could look at the state to the top-down solution. A lot of the artistic measures, as measures we're seeing elsewhere, we're seeing wonderful projects with um, people with dementia working on farms with chickens and things like that. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very much bottom-up solutions, which probably actually are more effective in, in people's lives, albeit less well-funded, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's that, it, it, it's that bottom-up thing. And, and it, it comes from an honest commitment from people involved in this to, 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 to want to make a difference and seeing things around us. So, you know, we've seen the sharp rise in rough sleeping in our city. Um, uh, we can't just sit back and watch that. Um, uh, we, we, we've seen a, a massive increase in um, in call on social services in the city. Um, we, we've got to be playing our part to try and improve uh, the, 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 those people, you know, those people who are on the receiving end of that. Um, improving, trying to improve their health outcomes or. Um, or, or, or even better, their, their, their work outcomes, whether they get into employment or not. So volunteering, for example, is a big part of all of that, getting people back into the workplace. And then that, I suppose that's, that's improving and increasing the depth of commitments and, and connections between artistic and cultural organisations and people. Um, how do you think those, sort of, for want of a better term, at the top end, how, how are we competing on a national and international level uh, in, in terms of our cultural profile? Um, I think uh, Profile-wise, we, 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 we seem to be doing very well. I mean, there's there is a big national narrative about how uh, Manchester continues to support arts and culture as part of um, a whole range of things. You know, economically, it, 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 it's important in terms of regeneration. Socially, we just talked about some of that, and also placemaking. And the placemaking agenda is becoming really quite big. And Manchester keeps being looked to nationally, and also internationally, um, as a an example of good practice. I've just returned from uh, a, a, a four-day visit to uh, Denmark, um, supported by Arts Council England, which is which has resulted in Manchester and the city of Arburg and Aarhus in Denmark uh, signing a memorandum of understanding about cultural collaboration because th those guys want to learn from us, and actually, I think we've got stuff we can learn from them. Um, so, so uh, that's been. You know, uh, mirrored elsewhere, um, our partner city of Chemnitz are coming over in the, in the not too distant future to find out more about what we're doing. So I think we, we, from a policy level, we're we, we competing well. But importantly, artistically, we've got some key institutions in the city who are really doing very well. So the Royal Exchange is on a bit of a roll at the moment, artistically. Um, the, uh, the Halley Orchestra is a truly world-class orchestra. Um, uh, the... the uh, uh, the, the Whitworth Art Gallery are, are, are doing uh, some amazing work. We see some of the some world-leading arts and health work coming out of Manchester Museum, who are going through a refurbishment. Contact Theatre, who are leading the UK and work with young people. So there's, I, I could go on. There's lots of really good examples like that. Um, so so, so we, we, we're doing well, but we can't take that for granted.
So are there, are there any gaps? Are there any big gaps? And, and how do we fill them if there are? Um, I think there are two gaps. <clears throat> um, one of them is, uh, as far as piece of kit is concerned, um, we don't have um, a, a, a major constal, which is you know, a big white box for major international artists to exhibit. Some people may dispute whether we, we, we want one of those, but I think that's, that is certainly a piece of kit that's missing. Um, but the other thing is that with the squeeze on property in the city centre, um, the, uh, being able to support maker spaces, artist workshops, rehearsal rooms, that sort of thing, is, 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 there's increasingly a gap there, and that's something that we've got to work on um, to try and, uh, and, and resolve. Because it's one thing making big, shiny things that the world wants to see. We want to encourage our, uh, uh, our population, uh, uh, the citizens of the city of the conurbation, to be making their own shiny things to, to sell to the world, to show to the world, etc. Um, because we want the next generation of artists to be coming from our city ra rather than uh, importing them. Yeah, because the School of Art particularly is, is world famous. It's, mm. it's how you actually then keep, keep those artists. Uh, I mean, what are we doing at the moment? What, what could we do more um, to keep artists, creatives, bands, rehearsal spaces in and around the city centre particularly and not drive them out? Well, we've, um, we, we did something about 18 months ago for Rogue Artist Studios who were being squeezed out of their mill in the centre of town. Um, and we found them an old school that we don't use anymore because all of our school stock's been replaced in the city. Um, so uh, they moved out to Varna Street um, in, um, on the edge of Gorton, um, uh, which is only nine minutes from Piccadilly on the train. So it's, it's really, it, 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 it isn't uh, that far out. Um, and uh, the, they've moved into that building. There are uh, 60 studios, 80 artists, as I understand it, around that figure. Company Chameleon have moved into the primary school, which is such there. So we've got some space there that's going. Um, that's an interesting model that we've learned a lot from. And we're in the process of, uh, of trying to uh, get a full understanding. Well, there's a piece of work going on at the moment to uh, assess the, 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 the scale of demand for the different types of spaces and also look at whether we've got other buildings in our in the city's property portfolio that we might be able to repurpose for those sort of things so um uh, we haven't got the answer yet what we're trying to do is to look at what the possibilities are um but certainly there is a uh th there is um a, a view in the city this is something we've got to try and do something about within um uh, the, the 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 means at our disposal um which, to be honest, are not huge, but nevertheless, uh, starting with a property is a good place. Yeah, it's one of those dilemmas, I suppose, that's been around for 30, 40 years in terms of, of regeneration. Artists, as the stormtroopers of regeneration, always go always moving into the areas on the edge of the city, bringing up the rent prices and pricing themselves out of the market, and then the property developers move in. There's also a bit of a myth around the northern quarter where I live that it was once full of artist studios, and actually there were only ever two, and there's, yeah. there's one of them yeah. is still there. Yeah. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting, and it's got a few, obviously, around, around Salford and Chapel Street. Um, one of the interesting things I've, I've seen is, is recently is um, the great Blueprint Studios, who, who of course... Um, Edit, edit this podcast and are, and are our friends and we've edited in the past um, you know they, they are increasingly surrounded by flats but part of the leases that goes on to those flats and, and the determination for those landlords and the developers is they actually have to make sure that there is proper soundproofing so that, yeah. so that Blueprint aren't in some way forced out in a yeah. few years by all these new residents yeah, that, 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 that's really important. Uh, it was quite interesting talking to colleagues in, 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 in Denmark and some of the things they've been doing there about, about so these are issues all over Europe, um, and probably in North America as well. Um, I bet the Danes have elegant design solutions for all this, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's some, some very beautiful-looking spaces, I can tell you. 
Um, we were talking about music, um, uh, just talking about Blueprint Studios, and, and um, what about live music venues? Uh, because it's changed, it's evolved, it, a number have fallen out of, out of the way, either, either been developed or, or just there isn't the market for that sort of that mid-range music venue as, as much as there once were. Is that a concern for you? Um, uh, Given our, it, our history. Our, our history, yeah. yeah of, of course it's a concern. It, it, uh, it, it, I have to admit it's not something that I'm really... Uh, uh, an expert on, um, but I've been talking to colleagues uh, about pulling together a conversation amongst people involved in promoting music in the city to see, you know, what the gaps are and what we might need to do about that. And um, there's a again one of the things we learned about recently on our uh, uh, trip to Denmark is there's actually a network of music cities worldwide, um, a form emerging network, and um, we are part of that network, which is bizarre. Um, and, and uh, in fact, actually, there are no English cities as part of that network. Uh, so, so we do need to be part of that network. We need to find the right mechanism for it. Um, uh, but, you know, Sydney, Berlin. Send uh, news of that across to my home city in, in Sheffield as well. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it, it's, it's an, uh, the, some, looking at how we support the infrastructure, because it, it's a bit... Music's in the DNA of the city. It's been it's, it's been the lifeblood of the city for as long as I've been living here, which is you know over 35 years. Um, we don't want to lose that. Um, uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it it, it we we've got to find the right way. I don't have the answer for that yet, but I think the the industry will know what it is. Yeah, I guess it's that that hard one of how do you balance the market and how do you balance balance the top down solutions that may be completely the wrong solutions. And yeah. there are a few places that um, can combine them in the right way. Band on the walls um, redevelopment obviously is, is is a good example of that. Yeah. I mean, we're still getting. I mean, obviously we've got the Everyman opening. Is that opening late, yeah. later in the year? We've yeah. got um, new theatre spaces coming on. It's actually have we got the opposite problem? Are we, are we sort of reaching a saturation where I don't know theatre companies are, are competing for the same audience. I mean, with the Halle space opening up in uh, Ancoats, um, is that going to compete for the Bridgewater audience? How, have we got a concern at the other end of things? Um, the evidence is that we, uh, we, we, we don't have market, market saturation um, uh, because we are reaching a relatively small proportion of the uh, of, of the population, there's, there's actually plenty to go at, particularly as the city's growing and expanding. Um, and uh, and the tourism economy is growing, expanding. Um, I, I think is it something like five thousand bed bedrooms are opening in hotels in the city centre. E even more. Yeah. It's even more. Okay. Um, so so um, the, the, there is a lot of uh, uh, the, the, there's a lot of growth potential still. Um, and I think you know commercial operators like Everyman wouldn't be moving into the city if they didn't think there was audience potential there. Um, they're, they're they're too smart for for, for making mistakes. So. Um, you know, I think I think there is growth, um, and uh, the, the 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 thing that's going to hold us back more than anything is our transport infrastructure. Uh, so so un un unless we can actually fix that, uh, you know, get, get make, make, make sure that uh, we have a much more integrated system. Which I know the the, the mayor Andy Burnham is is trying to get the powers to enable him to do that. Um, would be. A, uh, a big help for us, like it would be for everybody else who's trying to run businesses in in our conurbation. Transport is a massively uh, important issue. Yeah, at the moment we seem to be in certain areas. I mean, inclu including culture, um, and uh, the most wide sense in popular culture, uh, culture generally, uh, to be moving back to that image of the twenty four hour city. But we haven't got a transport infrastructure that supports that. Supports that. You know, tram trams running all night on a Friday and Saturday night still seems to be a very long way away, which is which is a real problem. Yeah, it is. It's a long way off. It is a long way off.
back, back to your first love, I guess. Um, what's next for home? What's happening at home? You're, you've, you've just announced uh, uh, an amazing collaboration with the International Festival. Yeah, the, the, the David Lynch thing's very exciting and is uh, enigmatic and rather peculiar trailer. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so David Lynch. <laughs> always, always love David Lynch. I, um, I, it's one of those great what-ifs that George Lucas asked him to direct the Empire Strikes Back. Oh. And it was it was like, what would that... I'm sure those Ewoks wouldn't have been so cute and cuddly in the <laughs> yeah. David Lynch version of it. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm looking forward to inviting him into the building. Uh, that's, that, that's good. And, and, and How's he actually working? How long, how long is he spending with you? Um, uh, to be confirmed, okay. um, he's, he, he's a very... Uh, age is not stopping him being busy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, he's, he's, he's got a lot on I, um, uh, we're hoping it'll be around for the first weekend of the festival um, and, but it's, it, it, it's still it's still to be confirmed um, but um, uh, coming up we've got uh, uh, Scotty uh, with his uh, sort of dance piece called Fat Blokes which is brilliant um, we've got uh, Viva Spanish Latin American festival coming up with uh, some great films and international theatre uh, uh, coming up um, uh, and then you, you, you mentioned David David Lynch. Um, oh, is it, it's action-packed program. It's non, non-stop, no sleep till we get to sleep. I don't know. No sleep till Christmas. Uh, and do you still manage? I mean, we, talk, we mentioned the Everyman. Are you, are you uh, concerned about them coming? Or are, um, are you, no. Do you think you'll, you'll each find your niche in the city? Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll find our place. Um, uh, we've, we, we, we have a, a, a pro... Well, our audiences are growing 3.4% year on year. Um, uh, that probably won't have escaped the everyman's notice. Um, yeah, the, the thing is... The probably first line in their business plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing is that we've, we, we, we have got a very old audience. We've got a very specific offer. It's very clear what we do. The everyman are very clear about what they do. I don't think they're the same things. Um, so, so we're all right. Um, and um, we've got a, a particularly good relationship with filmmakers. So we've got a Q&A with Carol Morley this evening talking about her new film. So I'm looking forward to saying hello to Carol this evening. Um, that, 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 that should be good. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried. And, you know, if more people go to the cinema, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for all of us. Excellent, and we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Dave, and we'll speak to you again in probably about two years. And we're back in the Ollenshaw room. Uh, talking about, well, we've already mentioned this under clean air, but we're talking about cycling and walking. Um, Chris Boardman launched, as, who is uh, the mayor's, what is he, commissioner for cycling and walking? Something That's like, right, something commissioner lines. for walking and cycling, yeah. Um, announced back in June last year, a strategy for so-called beelines across the city. Now, for various le- legal reasons, <laughs> they're no longer allowed to be called beelines, and they will be the bee networks. Um, Eve, when we originally met, of course, you were talking about the mega successful Mobike project. Well, you weren't. You were talking about cycling in the city. It was to commemorate the launch of the mega successful Mobike uh, network. Um, so take us through where the plans are, uh, what's been done so far, because the Chilton network is there or thereabouts. And I know there are investigations going into Thomas Street and across the Northern Quarter and various others. Uh, and, the, and of course, the importance of it. Why, why are we doing it all? Well, it's funny, isn't it, to reflect back on, was it two years ago we did that interview? Two years ago, ago on um, Mobikes then. And I remember saying then that, you know, Manchester were way behind our sort of sister cities really across Europe. Um, So it's good to see that this has absolutely gone up the agenda. Um, And I know that it was our manifesto meeting actually in Manchester before um, Burnham was elected in which the conversation was about congestion. And what came out was that walking and cycling was a key priority. 
that was a way to tackle congestion. That was a way to make the city more connected and also to make it a healthier, uh, more vibrant, more resilient place to be. Um, so what have we seen? Well, since then we saw, so he appointed um, Chris Boardman as, yep, his his czar or uh, otherwise known as commissioner for walking and cycling. Um, and Chris went on and published Made to Move, which was sort of 15 steps on how we move forward. And then since then, there's been the, the B-Lines, B-Networks, um, which started off across Greater Manchester. We're very much thinking about what are some of the easy wins, really. So this is about just how we look at those streets that already are safe or almost safe and accessible for walking and cycling and how we can maybe make small tweaks effectively um, to improve those so that can be things like crossings so often you get these particular roads that become barriers maybe between a school and a park or between um, shops and neighborhoods and actually just putting a crossing can quite simply open up that space. So this was about getting people in local neighbourhoods with uh, with maps, with pens, and actually putting where do they think these crossings should be across the whole of Greater Manchester, and then signage as well. So how do we just let people know how far it is to get to your library, for example, or to a park, and just put up signage that is saying to people, this is how long it'll take you by foot or by bike, and direct people around those routes. And I think that was, you know, that's all very popular. Um, so as a councillor, it's very popular because, you know, we, we've we been asking for more crossings for a long time. It's one of those things that we're routinely saying, we just need more crossings. It's a basic councillor job, isn't it? It is a, it's key, and it's really important because, you know, across, across your lifespan people want to be able to get around and if you find that you end up with this road that gets in the way that it might stop you as a family from being able to walk to school for example um so it's key so we're looking forward to seeing the outcome of that consultation obviously it was a whole of gm this has taken a while they've got lots of data we've got a briefing later this week as councillors in manchester to find out about the next stage um but hopefully that means that quite quickly within the next 12 months, we'll see more crossings popping up and the signage and people will get a sense that actually this is making a difference in their day-to-day lives. So that was the first stage. Then there is the bigger B network routes. Um, so these are where there are greater level of infrastructure changes. So the Chilton Cycleway has been put forward as sort of a flagship in that. And there's a main reason for, there's two main reasons for that. One, it was already in the pipeline. So it's already actually been consulted on. It's been talked about for, for years, in fact, um, the need to have a segregated cycle route um, between Chalton and the city centre. So there was already half-finished designs there in the pipeline. Um, another reason is that actually to deliver demonstrate this is going to make a difference and deliver behavior change you do need an area where people want to get on a bike um, and where it is accessible so you know in Chalton and Wally Range and Hume where it will run through there already is a large population of people who want to be able to cycle or to cycle more regularly so by putting in the infrastructure there we like to see an accelerated change very quickly if you put that infrastructure in a place where currently people don't have an appetite to walk or cycle, it's not been in their, their history to do that, we're not going to have the same level of accelerated change. Um, so that's why that route's been been picked. Um, and that was been consulted on. Uh, I had the pleasure of organising and chairing um, a 
proper sort of village town hall style meeting. You know, it's old style meeting, 180 people in a school hall <laughs> who all wanted their opportunity to really put their questions to Boardman. Um, and I think people, you know, the public see this as maybe Boardman's plan. And I think it's really important that he's got a vision for Greater Manchester and he's able to attract the money and put that vision out there and sell why this is really important. Actually, in the end, it isn't him that is literally sitting there coming up with these plans. He's got engineers at Greater Manchester level and actually all gets delegated down to the Manchester, you know, to the district. So it's, you know, it's our Manchester City Council highways team that are actually having to do the plans, that are having to run the consultation um, and are taking feedback and they'll ultimately be the ones that make the decision. But what Boardman's doing is he's very much got a blueprint. So the plans that were already in the pipeline you know, he looked at those and went, actually, do they pass the Boardman test? Um, and this is very much thinking about how we make sure that walking and cycling is for everybody. It's not just for our current lycra clad cyclists. It's not just for me who's grown up on a bike and actually quite happily does that route already. It has to be about my 13-year-old boy who actually wants to cycle into town with his mates. Is a competent cyclist, but at the minute, I would you know, be terrified, to be honest. You know, it has to be about, you know, people who currently don't feel safe to ride a bike. And then on the streets, it has to be about people with the, you know, the double buggy test. So he's very much looking at those routes and going, okay, do these routes pass those tests? And if there is a flaw in that route to any point, that means that you would say to your 13-year-old or your 12-year-old, actually, that now makes it unsafe for you, then the whole plan is flawed. You can't have a weak link. So it has to pass that in order to release this additional funds that have come from, from the government to make this happen. Um, and I think that's really important because people are, you know, inevitably lots of people look at it and they go, well, whilst we've got issues with our housing and our social care um, and potholes, you know, for people who don't ride a bike, they see this as something that maybe is created just for people that ride a bike. Actually, it's about making that possible for other people it's about creating those habits for younger people it's about the behavior change we need to see across the board and that money isn't there for us to spend on anything else it's not our money to choose to spend so either we take this opportunity and we make sure that we use it to meet the needs of the local people to improve our pavements at the same time to you know increase walkability and cyclability and recognize that that shift will also ease the congestion on our roads it will do things to suit everybody yeah there's the intro <laughs> Michael. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I, I live in Stockport and I commute into Manchester and I, I'd love a situation where our trains had a little bit more capacity. There is no sh no more surefire way of getting on a two-car train at 7.45 in the morning of antagonising your fellow passengers than actually taking a bike on as well to take up their space. And by the time you get to Guidebridge and Gorton, there's no one can get on anyway. Um, it is a hideous situation and actually to think and plan how people make slightly more complex journeys than just mm. from a Manchester suburb into the city centre or, you know, to distribute around different parts of Greater Manchester to go to Tameside and, or from, and, and use the cycleways to do journeys like that. And mm. the public transport system isn't set up to do that at the moment. And I completely echo everything that you said about safety as well. I, I, I do feel a little bit vulnerable, mm. even, even mm. at my tender age. Mm. Yeah, I guess I guess this comes to you can build in the infrastructure, and obviously there's capital funding for some of that stuff. But how much are we working towards education, uh, both of those 
transport planners for for public. But I guess also as somebody who is a pedestrian and doesn't ride a bike, mm. uh, the more bikes I see, in the, particularly in the city centre, mm. the more dangerous it is for me on pavements as mm. they ride. I, I was told by a cycling campaigner it's now legal for cyclists to be on pavements, which is news to the highways gov, I think. Mm. Um you know, we're seeing the situation now on uh, some of the towpaths, mm. particularly at rush hour, where you just can't walk along them because cyclists are go- going along them. So actually, there's a big education job on on all sides mm. about how cycli- cycling can fit into the city, mm. allow pedestrianisation, mm. how people can get cycles mm. into the city as well. And I, I worry, I think we're living in very angry times at the mm. moment. You know, I was having a drink with a, someone who works for an MP yesterday who just says every call they get is angry. And I said, what, about Brexit? They went, no, about everything. And this, and this is just another area where people seem to conflict. And I would... Yeah, you're right, Vaughan. I mean, you, the simple act of crossing the road has got this element of jeopardy to it now and, and this potential for conflict. And in this, these febrile times, it, it's, um, it, it's a shame that we can't fulfil. You know, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a couple of things in there, aren't there? There's one, there's, there's space and how we design that space. Yeah. So we're not putting people in conflict with each other. It's the conversation, how we're pitching it, you know, how we just keep saying, actually, we do have more in common. We want more in common. You know, ultimately, we want livable, connected, green vibrant places in which we can live we want communities and when you start talking about that people agree on what that looks like and they realize that walking cycling driving are not in conflict with each other if you design spaces to work for people um and also that it's not binary you know so yes i ride a bike i walk a lot <laughs> i use public transport um I take, I have a full range of choices, except I don't drive actually. So that's not a choice to me, but um, I have a full range of options available. And that's what we want. We want people to have a full range of options available to them and then to help create the habits. So, you know, for the minute, for me to get on a bike is the most convenient way for me to get around. Convenience is huge. That makes a massive difference. I literally cannot do everything I need to do in a day by any other means. Because my life is now designed around the fact that I can jump on a bike. It doesn't matter what the weather's like because I've got waterproofs that I can put on. So it's habit and it's convenience and it's how we design those spaces. And we stop putting people in conflict with each other. We actually recognise what what we do want and what we want generally is is the same thing. Um, so... <laughs> And for space, yeah, we absolutely, I want, we want bigger pavements. We want more public realm. We want to make that better. We don't want to just then take away space from those that want to walk around. And, you know, I know Boardman's really passionate about saying he's the walking and cycling champion. Um, And I think the focus ends up being on the infrastructure. The infrastructure is on largely how to create segregated cycleways because you don't really need to consult or discuss in the same way how to improve our pavements. Because everybody, nobody's going to challenge or question that. People want better pavements. So I think it's how we have that conversation. And yeah, absolutely, in terms of how we integrate our travel. You know, I end up often travelling across Greater Manchester. I choose bike and train, not using the metro because I can't take a bike on the metro. Um, And, you know, there's lots that we need to do to go. What are the options that don't make people feel that that then is creating, you know, we can create there's loads of things across Europe where they do that. That means that you're not then putting your bike in somebody else's way. You're not putting conflict with somebody with a wheelchair or a buggy. 
we need to change that and go out to make space for, well, for everybody. Certainly just around the corner from where we are, there's a, an experience for the first cycleway that comes into the city in, in Oxford Road and in Oxford Street. And the way that's designed um, is presumably designed by somebody who's never actually ridden a bus because the buses stop and the doors open and you actually exit the bus straight into the cycleway, which is a little bit unfortunate. And you sort of think, well, a little bit of planning, planning through that would have helped. Um, I do actually want to return a little bit to the the sort of the education thing as my experience of spending a long a lot of time in in the Yorkshire Dales uh, where on a Sunday or on a Saturday afternoon there are huge numbers of cyclists but it is very very different uh, where my family lives is is almost halfway between Otley and Ilkley which both have very famous cycling clubs when Otley and Ilkley or Ilkley cycling clubs are out and about apart from that they're going bloody fast um they have trained even their 10 year olds 11 year olds who are out they're all in the shape of a car you can't pass them for ages and ages and ages then they'll wave you through and wave at you at that point then you'll go around the next corner to see two usually elderly gents who are out wandering around the but they've, they've educated people is what i'm saying and I, and I and i and so i would assume that there's an awful lot less conflict with them even though they're actually in your way for a substantive as a car owner, I say, say that they're not really um, for for a substantial part, but be, but you sort of feel that they know what they're doing. They will communicate with you, whereas your usual leisure cyclist, not so much. They're more interested in talking to each other and wandering across the road or whatever. So I think the more cyclists there are, the more we have to think about education as well on all sides. I'm not yeah. just talking about for, for cyclists. And I'm really sorry, <laughs> Michael's trying to get in there. I'm really pleased that you um, you came back to that actually because that was when I first looked at the made to move plan. For me, that was what was missing. Um, it was a lot about the hard infrastructure and that's been a lot of the conversation and absolutely the behaviour change, the education, the soft stuff is just as important. Um, there's been loads of research done about, you know, you can build infrastructure if you don't have people that want to ride on that it's not they're not just going to come actually and that's been contradicted um, and there's a lot more we can do we've got some good foundations with lights of bikeability we've got lots of local organizations that deliver that but not there's not enough of an uptake so the uptake's pretty good it could be a lot better there's more we can do with younger kids so you know, i'd worked with bikeability with um, bike right to design a program for um, younger children where i was going in schools it was that joy you know to go and work with three-year-olds four-year-olds and get them riding in 40 minutes literally could get a child riding a bike through using a balanced bike um, and creating that habit and then working with their families to say actually what does your route look like working with the schools we're doing a huge amount of that in Chalton and just going actually how can we just support the schools and the families to get to school um, by walking and cycling um, and it does it, it you're right it's for everybody so it's you as somebody that is on a bike thinking about those around you slowing down it's not about speeding up it's about slowing down and we, we all need to slow down and take notice um, and then it's if you're somebody that's driving you know a project I did with with mums initially through trying to get more people walking and cycling at local school, you know, ended up with um, a group of local Asian mums um, getting on bikes. And as part of that process, none of them expected to end up cycling regularly. But what they said is it encouraged them to think about other people around them who are on bikes. And I stopped being seen as the crazy woman on a bike with three, pe with three kids and actually being seen as, oh, you know, it's Eve. She happens to be on a bike and actually they gave some more space to people on bikes and they themselves now ride around the park and they ride around for leisure. Um, and it's our lorries, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. our buses. It's everybody just 
being aware and taking notice that actually we're talking about people, people that travel in different ways and we all need, you know, we're all vulnerable in those moments. And that was the word I was actually on my lips as well, about vulnerability. And I really applaud the work that, that you've been involved in as well, that Helen Pidd from The Guardian has championed about safety on cycleways, particularly in the evenings on that loop that goes all the way over to East Manchester, the disused railway line. Those sorts of spaces, they need to be properly lit, they need to be safe, that people need to be able to feel that they can cycle on them and they're not going to get attacked, which then brings in a much wider issue about you know, the kind of spaces that we share and how we protect each other. Because, you know, we've all got an anecdote about crime we could share at the moment. And, um, and I know you've had security issues with your bike as well, haven't you? Um, and I think the other element of infrastructure, which is something we we need to think about, and again has come up in various business meetings recently, looking at you know the future strategy in the city centre, is really about the bike parking spaces. Well, yeah. It's great to have a route through, uh, but where are the um, what are they called Sheffield barriers or something they're called to park to park on? And where where you know every office block will now have one shower and about four bike parking spaces in it in its cellar, but actually. If we're going to have more and more people doing that, I know Brunt would have huge, huge expanses of uh, cycle parking. Um, but but for others, they need to be doing that as well. And we need to be able to be secure that you're able to park your, your bike on the street. And But if you're giving over to public realm to that, uh, are, is that problematic in itself? So next time you come and visit us at the University, Eve, we do have secure parking spaces in our <laughs> office for your bike, not just some lamppost outside that you might get your bike next. How ironic was that? I was doing my carbon literacy. Carbon literacy training at MMU and came out to find my bike had been nicked, <laughs> unfortunately. But hey, a that's life. Carbon neutral thief there. Yeah, I, I actually take the view that um, obviously it's always gut-wrenching at the time, but hopefully yeah. there's somebody out there who didn't previously have access to a bike is enjoying riding it. It's, it's what I like to think. <laughs> They've got yeah. the wind in their hair right Just now. Just hold and, that thought. Eh? Yeah, I'll <laughs> hold that thought. Um, but yeah, there's lots to be done. And I think there's a real opportunity for people in communities actually to say what would work for us. Um, so I know, you know, the Leventune model has been fantastic where they have a local level put forward a bid, um, which has gone to city council and now gone to Boardman's team for approval. There's funding there. And what we need to do is demonstrate that this will make places more livable. Um, we're doing the same in Chalton. You know, it's not about just, you know, those key routes. It's about your local neighbourhood and what we can do in our local neighbourhood to make them spaces that people feel more connected. You know, that you've got benches, you've got green spaces. Um, people can stop and linger and chat um, and all of those nice things that we want to do. And finally, um, we're going to do some quickfire stuff for the final bit. Uh, Manchester City Council has announced plans once again to redevelop Piccadilly Gardens. These come along every six months or so, uh, demolishing the freestanding bit of the so-called Berlin Wall and greening the rest of it. Um, now, the gardens are a constant issue in the pages of the MEN. Rather than talking about the gardens again, which, listener, is what we plan to do, uh, what I'd like to hear is what public realm works. What's the best public realm in the city? A minute each. Who should we start with? Michael, go on then. It, but actually, we haven't pre-prepared this, so we may all say exactly the same thing. Michael, go. I quite like All Saints Park, which is uh, right where I work at Manchester Metropolitan University. I used to live there when I was a student in the 80s. I like it because people use it in the way that it's now been intended. It used to have a playground when I first moved there in the 80s. And it's a really great space. When the, when the, when the weather's nice, people use it, sit out, they eat the food there. It's, it's clean, it's maintained. 
which is crucially important, but we've got an estates team at the university to do that. It's so good, in fact, that the University of Manchester wanted to create a park just like it, called Rutherford Park, and good luck to them. Eve, that, that was much less than a minute. Well done. Well, Eve. Oh, does that give me more? <laughs> See, I need, immediately I'm drawn to parks and then I thought about Manchester City Centre and I struggled to think, actually, of many green spaces. Um, so the two things that came to mind, first of all, actually, is the, just the green wall by Deansgate. And I always, because I cycle past that every day, that always gets my attention, that there's the green wall there and then you've got the green tracks and then you've got the actual that um, piece of artwork there, there's the, the bike. Um, and I always wonder what it'd be like if you could actually linger around that space a little bit longer. There you go to we use need more that word. There, yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, I mentioned before the statue, you know, I know a number of people have said to me now that they um, they stop and say hello to Emmeline quite regularly now on their way into work or their way out. And what a lovely idea. So St. Peter's Square. And I, you know, I know there's plans that we're looking to remove actually the traffic going around there and make it far more like our European squares where you do sit out and enjoy that space in our rare moments of sunshine and rain. Um, and I think that'd be fantastic. And I know, having mused on the fact that we have a lack of parks, that in Mipping right now, they are talking about park life and about the Mayfield Park, which apparently is going to come to our city centre soon. Certainly is. Uh, yeah, I was going to pick St Peter's as well, uh, just because uh, I think it's... Uh, one of the few pieces of public realm that we've created in the last 20 years, uh, which really worked, both really worked and looks amazing and actually has maintained, considering there are an awful lot of bodies buried there and it's a war memorial place, uh, a sense of serenity around it, which is helped by the volunteers from the Volition Project at the Cathedral who sort of hold people's hands. The other one, in my remaining 15 seconds, however, is, well, a combination of the pocket parks. You've you mentioned one. I think All Saints Park qualifies as a pocket park. Um, Sackville Gardens, which I always think is absolutely yeah. amazing. We, we don't make enough of our pocket parks in the city centre. People talk about, you don't have a Hyde Park. Well, yeah, we do. We have Peel Park. And as two cities grow closer together, that will be our Hyde Park. Uh, the other one, which I love every time I walk down the A6, is Ardwick. Green. I think Ardwick Green is one of the most amazing spaces and if you could just take away that very large road next to it, uh, it would be a beautiful place to be. That That's the first before... Oh. You're coming back in there, Eve. <laughs> I'm just thinking, will we sit here and say Piccadilly Gardens at some point in the future? I, I thought Vaughan was going to give a um, Well, I don't think they're not taking the wall opinion. down. I thought we were going to put taking, a green wall. Taking some of the freestanding walls down. Because uh, I've always down. looked at it and gone, just create a green wall. I don't, the, pr the, problem, the problem with the green wall is going to be maintenance of it. it it's, it's, it's great you can create it, but whenever you've had green walls in the past, they've been really hard to maintain. So that is going to be interesting to see how that's done. Uh, I have lots of conversations about Piccadilly Gardens. I think Piccadilly Gardens, when it was redone, should have been called Piccadilly Square. Um, I think the, the, the classic thing that people forget, which um, Michael and my generation will remember, that in the 80s when it was gardens, it was a place that you avoided at all costs. It was far more crime-ridden than it is now. Uh, and I think that would have been, it should have been our opportunity for a great European event space like Down Square. should have all been paved over had a whopping great um, theatre-style sound system put in and a screen put in, uh, and that could have been where all our great civic events were. I think it's very hard when you spent hundreds of thousands on a fountain and various other things uh, to do that now, but I think that's going to be an interesting one. I agree. Um, moving on, very finally, um, just for inspiration, uh, this is a podcast. Hopefully, people are listening to it. Uh, now available on Spotify, people. If you're not listening to it on Spotify, it is available on Spotify. Because everybody's been asking for that. Three people asked me for that on Twitter. So that's everybody that listens to it. Um, 
what podcast relevant to the city centre, the northwest, the north, city politics, however you want to say it, are you listening to at the moment? Michael? Yeah, I listen to the City Metric podcast, which John Elledge from the New Statesman does. And it's not about Manchester. Occasionally it is. Jennifer Williams has been on as a guest. They talk about cities and they talk about public transport. They have really geekish conversations about urban transport maps. And I love it because it just makes you think about your own city in that comparative way, about other, how it compares with other European cities. And that's, that's what I like doing with my, my family. We go, we go on city breaks to European cities, often recommended by uh, the people from Centre for Cities and from John on the City Metric podcast. Brilliant. Eve? Northern Power Women. I'm going to give them a shout out for their podcast. Um, because, yeah, I want to hear from more local women, really, talking about the things that they're doing and they care about. Um, the other one is a New Economics Foundation. That tends to be my regular um, podcast of choice. Uh, and actually, I'll do a shout out now. So I've been wanting to do a podcast on women talking economics. And I put that out on Twitter, having had a conversation with people about um, donut economics recently. And Kate Raworth and then others from IPPR North and from Claire's and from um, all over the place came back and said they're really up for it. So if there's anyone out there that really fancies helping host a uh, podcast on women talking economics, very much looking at how we apply it in Manchester. I really want practical tools. What can we do to disrupt our economics in Manchester and Greater Manchester? Then please get in contact. Brilliant. And to be a complete Philistine, and because the podcast I listen to are usually revolve around weightlifting and American football. Um, I'm going to choose the Bolton-based The Grognard Files, which is two gentlemen in their late 40s um, talking, as they put it, bobbins about role-playing games that they played when they were first were 16 and they're still talking about now. Um, Dirk the Dice and Blythe are the Mark and Lard of role-playing games. Obviously, this is something that probably... Uh, they constantly bemoan the lack of women uh, that, that play games, but it is it is... Fascinating for somebody that grew up at the same time to listen to their their thoughts back. It's probably the most relaxing podcast that I, I listen to. One episode will last about four and a half hours uh, of them continually talking, um, which is one of those things that you can drift off to sleep and wake up and they're still talking about the same dice rolls. Uh, I'm only allowed to talk about that because that's in Bolton and because I'm going to be the last person that's talking on this podcast. We've got another three and a half hours to go. Oh, we, could do, we could do, we could they, do. They do split them up into three episodes at one and a half hour yes. each, I have to admit. That's very niche. Uh, I, I, might, I might come up with someone that makes something that makes me sound a little more intellectual next time around. Yeah. Thanks to everyone into the room, in the room, in the room, into the room. Uh, Eve is on Twitter at... Eve Francis Holt. Thank you. Michael is at... Marple Leaf. And I'm at Cottonmouth MCR. The podcast available on iTunes and, as I said, now on Spotify too. Please leave a review and we'll be back in April talking more bobbins about politics and things happening in the city centre.